And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms of Atlanta rose to national prominence during the trials of the past year. COVID-19, police-involved shootings, and the movement for social justice. She's been a frequent presence on national TV and was a finalist on Joe Biden's list of potential vice presidential candidates. I sat down with the mayor today as Atlanta was reeling from a mass shooting, and that's where our conversation began. Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms, it's so good to uh, to meet you, to be with you. Uh, I feel like a lot of Americans, like I, I somehow know you because we've seen so much of you over the last uh, few years, but welcome. It's it's good to be with you. Oh, well, thank you for having me. And the feeling is mutual. I, I saw you quite a bit from a distance during the <laughs> campaign season. Yes. I'm particularly happy uh, that you had time today. I know that it's been a very busy day for you. And before I I so I'm interested in your story, which is a a remarkable story. And I want to talk mostly about that. But uh, something happened last night in Atlanta and in the suburbs outside of Atlanta that we should just touch on. And that is these horrific uh, killings and these massage parlors. Um, The first thing that people concluded, Mayor, um, because six of the people who were killed were uh, Asian uh, women, Asian uh, victims, that this was part of this string of hate crimes that we've seen across the country aimed at Asian Americans. I saw your briefing earlier today. That's not exactly clear cut here, is it? It's not, but um, also keeping in mind that we're listening um, to a confessed murderer. So we you know, have to take it all with a grain of salt. Um, but it, we can't ignore the fact that there were Asian women who were, seemed to have been targeted, these Asian massage parlors. There, um, there were two shootings, two separate locations in Atlanta, and then one outside of Atlanta in Woodstock. And if there's a silver, silver lining in all of this, um, he was caught on his way to Florida. So he intended to do even more harm. So it's it's just been a very, very dark day in our city and still so many things that we don't have the answers to. This man clearly um, was a very sick man. Uh, my understanding is that he had just purchased the weapon that he used. So there are going to be a lot of questions to be asked um, to verify and make sure the correct background checks were done and, and the whole nine and um, but at the end of the day, these lives have been taken, um, yeah, yeah. and it's just terrible. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure they'll also spend some time looking at his social media and uh, uh, and run down what might have been on his mind beyond, as you say, what he offered to police, but uh, just a terrible, tragic situation. And it does feed into this uh, really um, disturbing wave of anti Asian violence in the country. Uh, So that's why everybody was on a high alert. But whatever the circumstances, tragic. And uh, I know you've been all over it since it happened. But let's talk about your life. It's such an interesting one. And I have one small link other than that we both have an interest in politics. But I I have, uh, and that's Chicago, because your dad uh, 
was from Chicago. You were born in Atlanta, but your dad was from Chicago, and he was quite a prominent uh, Chicagoan, Major Lance, who was a great rhythm and blues star out of uh, Chicago. Tell me about him. He grew up in Cabrini Green. He did. Which is, you know, now notorious. Now it's been raised, but public housing, it was at the, he probably was right there at the beginning of uh, the Cabrini Green housing project in, in Chicago when there were high hopes that somehow this would be uh, a step forward. Yeah, so my family was part of the great migration from Mississippi, the Mississippi Delta. And uh, my dad was the last of his siblings to go to Chicago with his mother. And the story is that my grandmother would sit on her front porch. She lived on the sharecropper's farm. And the train would go by every day and she'd say, you SOB, I'm going to catch you one day. And one day, <laughs> one day she caught, she caught the train. So my, my grandmother used very colorful language, yes. <laughs> to say the least. Um, she was a wonderful woman. And so they moved to Cabrini Green. That's where my dad met Curtis Mayfield and the Impressions and so many others. They were on a label, OK Records, which was uh, sort of the Motown of Chicago. Um, but what's interesting, uh, Curtis Mayfield wrote all of my dad's hits and um, singing backup were the impressions and Maurice White from Earth, Wind and Fire even played drums on, on some of his tracks. So it's a it's a great story about Chicago and just all of the great people who came out of Chicago. Yeah. And he he had some real hits uh, uh, back then, so much so that he spent a lot of time overseas in, in Britain Open for the Beatles, I think uh, I read somewhere, and uh, uh, played with Elton John, a young Elton John, in some band uh, uh, back then. But and you, as a, a youngster, uh, spent a couple of your very early years in Britain as well. My earliest memories are living in England, and it it was great watching my dad perform, and we travel all over Europe. And Elton John uh, got his professional start playing piano behind my dad. I had a chance to meet Elton John maybe in the last couple of years. And he told me this wonderful story about of going to audition. And I think he had auditioned for Wilson Pickett and somehow ended up playing with my dad. And he told me about them going over tour all over Europe. At the end of the tour, he said, my dad took off his tie and gave it to him. And so, it, you know, it's great to hear those stories. and and. He, he, my dad used to tell me he opened for the Beatles when they came to America. I was like, yeah, right. Um, and now there's the internet and I see pictures of Paul McCartney carrying his album when they returned to Europe. So I guess he was telling me the truth about that. <laughs> <laughs> were you like bitten by the music bug? Were you, were you going to be a performer too? I, I laugh because yes, I wanted to be a performer and then I figured out I couldn't sing or dance. So it was just, it was all in my heart. So I guess some people would say politics is a form of theater and performance, I guess. Yeah, yeah. There's no doubt about that. But you don't have to keep a tune. You have to have a, you have to have the poetry. You don't have to keep the tune necessarily. You guys moved back to Atlanta. Why did you go back to Atlanta? Is that where your mom's family was from? So my mom was born and raised in Atlanta. We go back a hundred years in Atlanta. And um, my dad had come to perform at the Royal Peacock, which was a very big venue for the Chitlin circuit. And he met my mom 
And at some point, Curtis Mayfield had moved here and, and he was a country boy at heart. So it wasn't a stretch, I guess, that he would move here. So um, planted his roots here and, and was here when he died. In fact, um, the last big show that my dad did about two weeks before he passed was, was the Chicago Blues Festival. So, uh-huh. um, you know, I, I think it was a, a full circle moment we didn't know it then but um you know it's a it was a great way for him to end his performance here on earth he had challenges as well and 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 so did you uh and you've written about this and you've you've talked about this but um uh your dad had a downturn in his career and when he was eight when you when you were eight years old uh there was a knock on the door tell me tell me what Tell me what happened. So, my, you know, my dad was this big star. And then at some point when we came back from Europe, and the reason we went to Europe um, is because his popularity was much higher than, I think they called it the Northern Soul Craze. Mm-hmm. And as his career began to taper off, he still had a family. And and um, I now know my my dad did have addiction issues that I think he struggled with on and off throughout his life. So when I was eight, um, we had moved out of the home that I was born in. Um, I now know we lost that house in a foreclosure. Uh, we had moved into an apartment and my dad would usually be at home when I came home from school because he performed that night and came home and there were men walking in and out of our house carrying bags and boxes. And I saw them taking my dad out um, in handcuffs. And that really was the death of our family. In so many ways, my my dad ended up being sentenced to 10 years in prison. Um, he served three, but my parents divorced while he was in prison. And it was the lesson that I still hold with me to this day is that sometimes really good people make bad mistakes. My dad was a, he was a wonderful man, had a heart of gold. Um, and he made a really big mistake that changed the, it changed our family. Um, and it, you know, I would even say the, the dynamics and the trajectory um, of, of some folk in my family never really recovered from that. I'm trying to imagine what it must have been like for an eight-year-old who revered your dad and who saw him as, as you said, as, a, as this star. Um, uh, not just a great dad, but a, a, what, what, what was it? What were you thinking? What were you feeling at that, that moment? It was, it was um, in so many ways even more painful than death that I've experienced because I was very, very close to my dad and I, and, and I did everything with my dad. We, he, he performed at the Playboy Club in Atlanta. We go see him perform at the Playboy Club. I mean, he took us everywhere, which was a lot of fun. Um, and to see him then go to prison and the dynamic of my parents divorcing and you know, three years in the life of a child is a really, really long time. And, and you I visit you visited him there. Is that right? Every weekend all over the state of Georgia. And I remember as a kid, 
you know, in hindsight, I now know that adults were trying to probably pick me for information. This is before social media, but, you know, they'd say, oh, where's your dad living now? And I'd make up his story, whatever city he was in, if he was in Edenton, Georgia in prison or Columbus, Georgia, wherever he was, I'd say, oh, he's that, you know, I'd say he's living there now making mm -hmm. music. But the reality was that he was in prison. Yeah. What was it like to visit him there? I was always happy to see him, um, but always very sad. And there would just always be a room full of black men with children seeing their dads. And there are certain things you can never forget about those visits. You never forget the sound of the, the doors locking and unlocking. And you don't forget the smell. Uh, it's just something about the way prisons smell. And um, he, I guess, was not in a maximum security place. So we would usually be in a big open area with other families. And I remember there was another place. It was a lot smaller. I think this was in Edenton, Georgia. And I always remember the serenity prayer was on the room, uh, on the wall in the room. So I, I have just different memories of, of different places. Um, but it was just a gym full of black men in prison uniforms and, you know, their kids hanging on to their legs and arms and just trying to hold them close for as long as they could. Yeah. And you, you said your parents uh, split up. Uh, I mean, that must have changed your life dramatically. Oh, it, it did. It did. And, you know, it was so confusing as a child because I, I think I saw my parents argue once. My parents had a very good relationship. And even after they divorced, they had a great relationship. And as an adult, as I talked to my mother, she says, you know, she just she couldn't deal with the addiction and the deception um, related to the addiction because my mother had no idea that my father was selling drugs. And she says, you know, it's one of the biggest regrets of her life that she wishes she had been more mature and really could have stuck it out with him because he was such a good person. Yeah. And you've said that he continued throughout the rest of his life to encourage you to believe that you could that you could achieve. Oh, always. Every visit. I mean, it was how are your grades? What are you doing in school? He was very big on my being respectful. I would get in more trouble for getting a C in conduct. I could get a C in conduct and an A in the class, and I still get on get put on punishment because I was being disrespectful. Um, so he was just always encouraging me, and even you know that was part of the reason I went to law school. He would say, you know, we're going to go back and we're going to get all the money that the record companies took from me, and and I think just. Um, having that the impact of the criminal justice system at such a young age i went on at some point in in my career to serve as a, a magistrate judge and i got yeah. up courage one day to go pull the file and i read the criminal file and i realized that there was um someone who i was sitting on the bench with who who had actually prosecuted my dad um so it was you know um there's still things that, that I'm learning um, and just becoming, uh, you know, the older you get, you 
become more forgiving and more understanding. Um, and, you know, I, I couldn't have had a, a better dad. Um, and so I, I, I appreciate that. And what was one of the absolute worst things that's ever happened in my life, watching him go to prison, I think really in so many ways has shaped who I am today. When you said uh, you told people that he was going to this town or that town because you didn't want to tell them, I, I presume it's because you didn't want to tell them, yeah, he's in, he's in prison. Was that because of you were embarrassed or was it because you didn't want them to think of him? You didn't want that to define him in their mind. I think it was a com- probably a combination. And I grew up in a household where you didn't talk about what happened in your household. Uh-huh. Um, it was always a lesson. What happens in this house stays in this house. And um, I was I was ashamed um, I didn't, at that point, I didn't know anybody else's dad who had gone to prison. And everything about our lives changed. We went you know, from this great middle-class neighborhood and we were living in an apartment complex and it just, everything was turned upside down. And, and I guess at eight, nine, 10, 11, I didn't know how to make sense out of sure. all of that. So, um, but I think a lot of it was protect, protection of him, too, because I was very protective of him. You know, talk about influences in your life. Tell me about your aunt, who you never met, uh, who is a, a historic figure, really, in the civil, civil rights movement, though she died quite young, uh, uh, Ruby Doris Smith Robinson. Um, tell me about her, because uh, I know you've said that her, her legend was part of what would help shape you as well. Absolutely. I had my mother had two brothers who married two sisters and she was one of the sisters and I, um, her son to raise, she had one son. He was around two or three when she died. It was almost raised like a brother with me. So I was always aware of her uh, because of my other aunt and um, because of my cousin to who was named after King Teray, whom she had the opportunity to visit. But she was just this strong, courageous woman beyond her years. She uh, was a student at Spelman, and um, I've heard great stories um, from Julian Bond and John Lewis just about her courage and her strength. She, uh, Julian Bond told me the story of her integrating Grady Hospital, which is our large county public hospital in Atlanta, and going up to the counter and the receptionist saying, you don't look sick to me. And she stuck her finger down her throat and vomited on the receptionist's desk. And she says, is that sick enough for you? And um, <laughs> they were, um, SNCC was going to Africa. And they got ready to board the plane. They told them the plane was full. And they said she went and sat on the tarmac and said she wasn't moving and planes would not take off unless she could get on the plane. And of course, they ended up getting on the plane. So what Congressman Lewis shared, she was executive secretary of SNCC. The Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which was the organization that John Lewis and and others uh, uh, founded during the civil rights movement. And she was one of the leading women in that movement. She was, and by all accounts, she was the backbone of SNCC. She um, 
went to jail in Rock Hill, South Carolina with John Lewis. And, and then she was jailed for 30 or 40 days in Jackson, Mississippi. And the Atlanta University Center Library, Woodruff Library, has beautiful letters um, on display that she, that she had written her mother from jail. And when Congressman Lewis would talk about her, he would get very emotional. Um, she was very near and dear to him and just meant so much to the movement. And she died uh, tragically when she was 26 years old, three years before you were born. You, you must often wonder what, what she would have become. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, her impact was so great. And, and my uncle died just a few years ago in the past 10 years. And what struck me, uh, he asked um, that he be cremated and that his ashes be spread over her grave. And I thought, what an impact she must have had that this number of years later, 45, 50 years later, he still wanted to be with her in death. Yeah. It's touching. Yeah. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. You mentioned that you went to law school, but you didn't start off that way. You went down to Florida A&M and, and you were studying to be a broadcast journalist. I was. And I think that's the, the, the performance thing. Uh, you know, I, I think that was in, in my blood wanting I love to write um, and wanting to be on television and have my voice heard and the whole nine. Uh, but I hate it, a small town, living in a small town. So I didn't have the, the patience to do what most successful journalists do. And they start in small towns and work their way up. I wanted to get back to Atlanta. So yeah. I, I ended up in law school. And you met your, your husband down there. Uh, or uh, in law, I guess in law school, or did you meet him in, in, in college? I met him in law school at Georgia State uh, University. And in between law school and, and your wedding, uh, your dad passed away. You mentioned he was performing just a few, um, a few weeks before that. Um, so was this sudden and unexpected? It was. He, he passed in his sleep. Um, and he would tell me when I, I got engaged and he liked my husband, but he, my dad had glaucoma and he would come up with all sorts of excuses as to why he couldn't walk me down the aisle. He said, I can't see, I won't be able to see who I'm giving you away to. And so when, when he passed, I said, well, daddy, that was a really long way to make a point. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, but he, he passed um, just a few weeks before our wedding. Yeah, that's that's sad. That must have been difficult for you mm. on the wedding day, uh, knowing that he didn't see see that moment. Oh, it, it was so very sad. And, and my husband and I have been married, oh gosh, 26 years this year. I don't know if he's a regular, a regular listener here, but I hope you get, got this right. I want to be able to add this up, but... Um, <laughs> You know, I'd say we really need a do-over on on the honeymoon because it was not the happy occasion that it should have been. 
You didn't practice law for long. Uh, why not? I never loved practicing law. Uh, I just always wanted to do other things in addition to practicing law. And it, so we, I ended up working in Macon, Georgia at a TV station while I was practicing. I worked at a radio station and all these things that you can do when you don't have kids and you have a lot of time on your hands. Um, and then I be became a judge and, and did some other things with my law degree. But it was when I was when I joined city council that I actually began to appreciate my law degree. And I said, OK, lawyers really do think about things differently. We analyze things differently. So I always thought the value I had gotten out of my law degree was that I met my husband in law school. But now I see it was worth so much more. <laughs> uh, not that that's a bad thing, right? That, that was valuable too. Yes, indeed. Thurbert Baker was the attorney general and you left uh, the practice of law to go to work for him. Uh, and you were his press secretary, you were his speech writer. Um, so there was a draw, obviously, to uh, politics, public service. Um, why? I've always been interested in politics, and I think that's part of the beauty of growing up in Atlanta. There have always been very charismatic leaders mm -hmm. in our city. Um, Maynard Jackson is the first mayor that I remember, this larger-than-life personality, followed by Ambassador Young. And so there was just always an, an interest in politics. Um, then Bill Campbell, and then Shirley Franklin, and then Kasim Reed. And um, so... Uh, these leaders who always had an impact on the national stage too. So I always had an interest uh, working for Thurbert was, was really interesting, very different lens, but I, I got an opportunity to do what I actually love to do. And that was to write and, and do the media stuff that I never really pursued. And then the opportunity to balance that with the political part, which state government is a whole different beast. Um, it was an incredible experience. You ran for judge. Uh, you were a magistrate. You ran for judge. You challenged a sitting judge and you lost. I did. I'm always interested in how people process that. Um, you know, I, I was involved in 150 campaigns. I'd like to say we won all of them. <laughs> uh, we did not. Uh, but, um, but I wasn't the guy whose name was on the ballot. And I'm wondering how you, how you process that. Best thing that could have ever happened to me. I didn't see it in the moment. But the interesting thing, when I ran for that seat, there was an open seat, which would have made more sense, but I didn't have sense enough to do that. There was a guy who was on the bench and I thought he was doing a horrible job. And I said, well, he shouldn't just get to keep his job because he's an incumbent. And I campaigned all over the county, really big county. And um, I came close. I got 47% which was shocking to people. And of course I was disappointed because I, because people were, Oh, you know, you had such a good showing. I said, well, I was in it to win. <laughs> I don't care about the good showing. And I just remember, um, I couldn't go back to sitting on the bench. The chief judge who had appointed me s said something to the effect of, well, we wish you well and hope that you will win, but we can't give people the impression that we're breeding magistrates to run against superior court judges. So I lost my job, couldn't go back. 
And I remember sitting on my floor one day, just going, okay, God, you, you told me to, to do it. I did it. Now what? And a year later, uh, when my city council person announced we could qualify and he wasn't running, I ran for city council. And because I had that loss, a countywide race, campaigning in a, a district, a council district, was a piece of cake. I think I knocked on 5,000 doors, maybe, personally. You know, when, uh, when Winston Churchill was defeated for prime minister in 1946, after leading Britain through the World War, his party lost, and his wife said, uh, well, this is really a blessing in disguise. And he said, yeah, well, it's rather well disguised. <laughs> and I'm sure you felt that way then. But you said you, uh, you, you had this conversation with God. Faith is, faith is important to you. Uh, and has that been throughout your life? Is that something that you're that that was part of your family tradition? Or is that something that you came to yourself? Part of my family. Uh, my father's mother was a woman of tremendous faith, and I grew up. I spent so much time with my mother's parents. They were. Um, my grandfather didn't attend church a lot in my lifetime. Um, he did when he was younger, but you know, he was a man of great faith and my grandmother attended church every Sunday. Um, and she would have dinner and breakfast prepared at the same time on Sundays. I never figured out how she did that. And we'd spend Sundays, the entire Sunday, um, in their home. And so, you know, it was like my, my watching my grandparents' faith that I think sustained me before I began to understand my faith for myself, just those things my grandmother would say, all things work for the good of those who love the Lord. And when my dad was in, in prison, just the forgiveness and grace. And, um, and I remember even when my parents divorced, when my dad came home from prison, my grandmother cooked this huge meal. And we, you know, had a big welcome home dinner in my grandparents' home. So they, they my grandmother actively practice her faith and going to church every Sunday. But more than that, she just, she lived it. Yeah. So when you sat down on the floor and you addressed God who uh, delivered you 47% of the vote, <laughs> can't really blame God. But um, I mean, were you really looking for guidance? Were you looking for direction? I absolutely was because I, it was so clear to me that I was supposed to run against this guy. I couldn't figure out why God would make that so clear and then allow me to lose. But I now realize, one, I likely would have been miserable on the bench because I'd like to talk just to have to listen <laughs> to people all day. You know, magistrate cases are very short. <laughs> yes. um, I, I would have been miserable. And it also ignited something in me. I never thought about running for office, but for the fact that I challenged this judge. But when I saw all of these communities uh, across the county and, and what good representation looked like for these communities, I wanted it for mine. So it, it's the reason I ended up running for city council and now I'm mayor. So I, I think it, it, it ignited something that I didn't even know I had a desire to pursue. It's interesting about faith. 
it, it, it is a central part of, of so many people's lives. Somehow it's become a source of contention in our politics as well. And you must feel that in Georgia. I mean, you're a, uh, you, you're a person of faith and there are other people of faith and somehow there's this big divide and, you know, uh, and sometimes uh, in the name of faith, uh, people are led in a, a completely different direction. I mean, have you had conversations about faith with people um, across that divide? Um, I, I would, I would say yes. I, I and it's more um, just in trying to understand one another. If we claim to love and, and serve the same God, it is sometimes confusing that we can end up in very different places on an issue. Um, but I, I also know that God loves us all individually. And for me, it really is just remembering what my faith teaches me. It teaches me not to be judgmental and not to hold grudges and, and, and not to be quick to anger and all of the things that I haven't perfected, <laughs> including that list. Um, and just really trying to understand how people get to where they get, because it's, it is very difficult to hear people who claim to love God, but, you know, to watch them do the things that they do on the national stage and, and what's happening even um, in our state. Um, so, you know, faith is complicated. Yeah, as are people. As are people. All those virtues you listed are sometimes hard to practice in politics. So, uh, very, very difficult. <laughs> yeah. Tell me about the city council when you got there. I just, I, I don't know that much about it, about what you, you did, um, there, but it seemed like you very much focused on the tangible, on infrastructure, on economic development, on tangible things that would build up the community. Is that a fair assessment of your focus back then? Very accurate. And it's really interesting because in, in there are some days I, I feel as if there are times I got more satisfaction on city council because I could see the results very quickly. I could influence them very quickly. And it was so granular. I yeah. could, you know, see a block and I could make a difference on that block. And of course, being mayor, it's much more difficult to get results that quickly and and to to see them in real time because you know there are days you go am, am i making the impact that i should be making um because you're representing a, a much larger constituency uh so it was um it was a very good experience i thought that it was great preparation for being mayor i was completely wrong <laughs> serving on city council and being an executive uh, of a large city or you know there's no comparison but you you raise a point that's always struck me you know i um i did a lot of a lot of my focus as a consultant was a mayor's races around the country oftentimes for candidates uh, of color who are breaking barriers but uh but not always and uh, I was really drawn to it. I, I'm a former uh, city hall bureau chief for a newspaper for the Chicago Tribune. Seems to me local government and local politics are the most vital politics there is because um, because of what you say. Because there's no, you know, it's not attenuated 
You're not a member of Congress, legislator, governor. You're there. You go to the grocery store Mm -hmm. and your constituents are right there to tell you uh, what you have and haven't done. You walk down your street and you can see what you have uh, and haven't done. And that makes it um, a much more, um, I think, tangible um, and, uh, uh, you know, visceral kind of politics. Um, So, you know, I'm, it's interesting for me to hear you uh, say that. Now, I don't think mayors get off easy either. You go to the grocery store too. Um, and you, you, I'm sure you hear, uh, from your constituents, you, you got elected mayor in 2017. It was a very close race. You won by 900 votes. And I think it's fair to say, uh, these have not been a quiescent, you know, three and change years for you or the country for that matter, but you've been touched by a lot of this, you know, tell me about that experience and the sort of tumultuous nature of these last three years. You're right. My, my race was super close, 832 to be exact. And uh, the race began, I think there were 18 candidates at the beginning of the race. So it was a very long and difficult race. We (laughs) not even, uh, three months in, we had the biggest cyber attack in municipal history. Our systems were completely taken offline. Um, we were asked to pay a ransom, which I was so Iranian hacker, right? It's a, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, you decided not to pay the ransom, which became controversial. It um, did. And um I, I laugh. We had a COO on loan who was actually my high school classmate. And he now laughs as he tells his story. He was three days in. He was an executive on loan. And, uh, you know, he was presenting the options about paying the ransom. And I said, you mean I got to pay them to get my stuff back? I'm like, no, they can keep it. I'm not paying to get my stuff back. And our systems were pretty bad anyway, so they needed to be rebuilt. And he says that I looked at him just like I looked at him across the table in the cafeteria in ninth grade. <laughs> <laughs> so we we did not we did not pay. We needed to rebuild our systems. Thankfully, we had cyber insurance, but it was a really tough time. There was a federal investigation going on in City Hall uh, that's never been closed. So, and that, and that we should point out uh Kasim Reed who I know and and frankly I had a good re- a good relationship with um very charismatic smart guy uh but his administration was targeted there've been some pretty high level uh in- indictments uh related to it um and uh you were touched by that only uh, because he was a supporter of yours mm-hmm. uh and so that hung over you as well you ended up removing a lot of almost all of the people who were part of the cabinet under the previous administration. But, um, but that's still, that stuck to you a bit. Yeah. You know, trying to um, convince people that you were there for the right reasons. And, um, you know, hopefully uh, as I round out this first term, um, people finally see that I am there for the right reasons. And it was, but it was tough because you, when you have a federal investigation going on, uh, it paralyzes people in so many ways. You have very 
senior leaders who are either afraid of being on the six o'clock news or being investigated by the FBI for a mistake. And, and I remember sitting down with the U.S. attorney and he, he said, this investigation will likely last your entire first term. And I said, you know, you've got to give people room for error. Sometimes uh, people are just incompetent or sometimes people just make mistakes. It doesn't mean that they have criminal intent. It means that they are human. I remember having that conversation with him. So anyway, you know, cyber attack, federal investigation, and then uh, COVID and um, the social protest over the summer. And I didn't have the benefit of being mayor under the Obama-Biden administration. So I would talk to other mayors and they'd talk about how life used to be better. And I would say, all I know is misery with the administration that was in place. But I can tell you, I, I, I personally already feel the relief just even with the shootings last night um, to be able to get on the phone with the White House and have someone genuinely concerned about what help we needed and what resources and, and how they could support us is just, it's a 180 change from um, what I experienced under the previous administration. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. I want to ask you about about the pressures on a mayor and on you in particular between uh, security and providing security for neighborhoods and, you know, you've had, as many urban areas, including Chicago, ha- have had a pretty significant uptick in, uh, in, in violent crime in the last year. Um, obviously an issue of concern to people, uh, but so is social justice. And you have this unique perspective as someone who experienced the criminal justice system uh, from, the, from, the, you know, from the perspective of the child who saw her father um, uh, taken away. Uh, I know you have four children. Mm-hmm. I know you view it through that uh, lens as well. And so you have, on the one hand, people who are outraged about uh, about the mistreatment of uh, of of black people, people of color, by police. And on the other hand, people who are desperate for secure neighborhoods. And that that's that's a tension that's hard that 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 you must have to navigate every day we we absolutely do and it's challenging because sometimes people think that you you can't have both we can hold our officers accountable um and we can still have respect for our officers we can have criminal justice and social justice reform and, and we can still do our best to protect our streets. And, you know, it's this COVID crime wave. I was I'm preparing for my state of the city address and I was looking at the one from 2020 that I didn't have an opportunity to give and to look at what I was going to say in 2020, in March of 2020, crime is down by 9% and there were all of these wins. And then 
2020 <laughs> descended upon us and it all changed. So we've got an uptick in crime, not just in Atlanta, it's happening across the country, but when it's happening in your city and on in your community. Yeah, that's not a very satisfying answer no, when it's happening all it's, over. Yeah. It's, not, it's not at all. And I've, I've reached out, Bloomberg Associates does a lot of work with us. Um, and I know they're connected with cities across the world. Um, and I've reached out and I said, please tell me who's getting it right. Not who has programs, but who's getting it right. And of all of the cities that they are connected to, uh, the one city that they were able to share with me that's seen a, a dip or um, sustained crime numbers was Newark, New Jersey. So I immediately called Mayor Baraka um, and I said, what, what are you doing in Newark? And it's been a combination of things. Part of it uh, in, includes crime prevention coordination. So we know police officers respond to crime. They show up after something has happened. Um, but there's a, a whole different set of initiatives related around crime prevention. We're seeing some success on a small scale in some areas of our city. We're looking to expand it, but it is, it is frustrating. It is very sad that it's happening across the country. And every mayor that I know, with the exception of Mayor Baraka, uh, we're pulling out our hair trying to figure out how to get to the other side of it. There are a couple of, I just want to, go back a, a little less than a year to uh, the George Floyd murder in, in Minneapolis and the reaction to it. You know, there were protests across the country and then there was v violence in, in cities, including yours. You got quite a bit of attention nationally for a speech you made. And I get the sense that you write your own speeches, but this you, this was not one that you wrote. This was one you just reacted and and spoke. And uh, you said, um, uh, you know, this is not this is not in the spirit of Martin Luther King. This is chaos. A protest has purpose. When Dr. King was assassinated, we did not do this to our city. You want to say when you burn down the city, you're burning down our community. If you want to change America, go register to vote. Show up to the polls on June 9th. Do it in November. This is the change we need in this country. You are disgracing our city. You are disgracing the life of George Floyd. Really, really powerful. Got a lot of attention. What was the reaction in Atlanta to those remarks? I think the impact was felt. And, uh, you know, for people who were watching um, it happen in Atlanta, they knew it didn't, it didn't look and it didn't feel like Atlanta. So that day I had given some testimony um, uh, Congressman Clyburn um, had a, a special committee, I think, on COVID that he was chairing. And I finished the testimony and I was in my kitchen and I turned on television and I immediately, I said, this, something's not right. It just didn't, it didn't look and feel like protests that we had seen in the city before. So I think in the same way I saw it and felt it, people across Atlanta um, felt the same way because we're, we have protests all the time. We have peaceful protests and it is in the spirit of Dr. King and, you know, the generations who've, who've learned the lessons of nonviolent social change. And there was something very, very different about what was happening and what we could see on May 29th. And um, 
so I, people seem to have appreciated the speech. Uh, just the other day, I was at a vaccination site and it was a, an older man. And he said, you know where I'm going? I said, where? He said, I'm going home. And he was, you know, imitating yes, the way that yeah. I said it. So I think that people, people obviously remember it and I think they appreciated it. Was there blowback from any elements of the activist community? There were some, you know, some people said that I was worried about black people embarrassing me in front of white people. And I, you know, call BS on that um, because that absolutely wasn't true. So there were, you know, every everybody's not going to love everything that you do. Um, and it went about us embarrassing ourselves. Our city was burning. And that shouldn't happen in Atlanta and it shouldn't happen anywhere. And it wasn't in the spirit of Dr. King. And it had no purpose. Yeah, not long after you had a police shooting in your own town that got national attention. Uh, Rayshard Brooks, 27 years old, unarmed, killed in, a, I think, a Wendy's parking lot on the day of his daughter's eighth birthday. Yeah. So now... Atlanta became sort of ground zero for this uh, debate. And um, how, how are you? I know you fired the police chief. You tried to fire the officers involved. They were reinstated by a board. Uh, there's still, I guess there's still criminal, uh, there's still criminal investigations going on or, or in, in progress. Tell me if I'm getting any of these facts wrong. Yeah, so the, um, our police chief offered her resignation. Um, And I accepted her resignation. Um, I I did fire the officers and there were two incidents um, within days of each other. One was related to some college students being pulled out of their car and tased. And then there was the shooting of uh, Mr. Brooks. So the two officers involved in the Brooks shooting only fired the one who shot him, not the other officer who was on the scene. And then the officers related to the incident with the college students. Um, not all of them were, fi- were fired either. Uh, the ones who deployed the tasers were fired. So the bigger challenge that came in um, was shortly after I fired the officers, the district attorney came in and then charged all of these officers. So uh, the challenge with that, my, my frustration point was that is that there were dozens of use of force cases sitting on the district attorney's desk that he had not taken any action on. This is the previous district attorney. We have a new one now. He had not taken any action on those, but then he jumped in and indicted these officers and it just, you know, inflamed an already bad situation and it created some challenges with the police force and some, some, you know, there were layers. Mayor, does that contribute to difficulties in dealing with the crime issue in the city? Well, I think the difficulties we have with dealing with crime, there are a couple of things. One, it's a significant uptick that we've not seen an uptick like this in in 20 years is the reality of it. Uh, But then there's this bigger issue of public safety and officers. um, Really, uh, many officers have left the force. They've opted to retire, not just in Atlanta, but across the country. 
or they've chosen not to enter or, or not to remain with public safety. And then layer on COVID, even as we try and recruit officers, we've not been able to recruit and get them through the academy as quickly because of you know, COVID having to limit class sizes mm -hmm. and, and challenges with the administrative part, trying to get fingerprints and all these other administrative things. So it, it's been this perfect storm, um, so to speak, just as it relates to our challenges with, with pushing back on crime. As you spoke, I should say, about these issues and COVID and uh, came into national prominence. You also were an early supporter of Joe Biden, and you surfaced as a vice presidential candidate, went through the whole arduous process, probably had to turn over every scrap of paper you ever had to his vetters and so on. A, what was that experience like? And B, is it an advantage or a disadvantage at home to be projected in that way? I mean, do people say, that's cool, our mayor is being considered a vice president? Or does it say, why is she, or do they say, why is she playing national politics when, you know, we've got these problems at home? Well, I think it, it works to an advantage when you don't have a crime spike. Uh, when you have a crime spike, there's a lot of Monday morning quarterbacking. And, you know, people believe that, you know, there's some say that you're distracted on the national level, which is, is absolutely not true. Um, you're always connected and you're always leading at home. And even, you know, this is a pretty long interview. Even when you do interviews on CNN and other outlets, you know, your, your sound, your interview may be two to three minutes. So it doesn't take up nearly as much time as people actually, the perception of it. Um, but I do think people I appreciate, appreciate you giving us a little more, by the way. But <laughs> Yes, I, I'm enjoying the conversation. But I do believe, you know, it, it is always nice to have a leader who can pick up the phone and call the White House. And I think that people appreciate, especially with Georgia turning blue and with ascending two senators, two new senators um, to Washington, clearly it made a difference and clearly it was needed. So I think there are a lot of people who appreciate that. But people, understandably, the thorn in our side right now is crime. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't have anything to do with my campaigning uh -huh. for Joe Biden or, or being vetted. We've got a COVID crime wave across this country right now. You were a serious uh, candidate for vice president. Did you ever, it's kind of a, it has to be sort of a sobering thing to sit there and say, I could be a heartbeat away from being president of the United States. How did, how did, how do you, how do you go through that process in your own head? I think it was more sobering for my husband because he would say, do you recognize that you'd be one heartbeat away? I mean, he would say that to me repeatedly. Would have changed your lives too, his, your kids. I mean, I told Barack Obama this, you know, once you, once you go down that path, you really, it's hard to reclaim your lives. Your lives are now, you live within this very circumscribed sort of the walls, you know, unseen walls. So, yeah, I would think it would be sobering for him as well. It was. Um, you know, it, it's an uncomfortable process to have someone ask you, whose address was this you used to go to Frederick Douglass High School? I'm like, you know, I use somebody else's address. How'd you know that? Yeah. <laughs> you know, those are um, 
you know, to know that they have, have gotten that granular in your life, just it, it's uncomfortable. Yeah. But, um, I, you know, it's quite an experience to say that I was, I was vetted. Of course, I wanted him to choose me. And I, I said, if you pick me, I promise you we can take Georgia. Well, clearly he didn't, <laughs> he didn't need me for that. <laughs> but, yeah. let, let me ask you about that before we run out of time here. Uh, you mentioned that Georgia turned blue to senators. Not everybody in Georgia was enthused by that. Most, uh, most prominently Republican legislators yeah. uh, in Georgia who are now who have, uh, uh, passing a, a whole array of laws that are meant to uh, cut down the number of days people can vote. And uh, there are other obstructive e- elements to the plan. And it, it you know, how, first of all, let me say, if those laws were in place, would Joe Biden have carried uh, Georgia? Would, uh, would Ossoff and, 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 and Reverend Warnock uh, gotten elected to the Senate? I believe so. And I say that because you mentioned when I spoke on, on May 29th when the city was burning, what I saw when people came out to vote on June 9th in the primary, there was a, a this resolve and this just stoic energy. And it was so reminiscent for me of the pictures that you see of people standing in line in the, in the 60s waiting to vote. Mm-hmm. We were committed. And I heard Ambassador Young speak last week, and he said, when I ran for Congress, um, there was, you could vote one day. It was a, a rainy night and day in Georgia, and 74% of African Americans registered to vote showed up. So that being said, this is awful what the Republicans are doing. And if it happens, we, it's even more reason we've got to show up to vote and continue to change not not just the Senate and not just the White House, we got to change the state house in this state. And clearly we have the numbers and the ability uh, to do that with registered Democrats in this state. They're going to make it a lot more difficult. But we've also got to remind people you can't just show up and vote for president. And you can't just show up when you vote for president and, and don't vote down ballot that we got to keep pushing until we can um, make sure that the, the entire state um, is a sustained blue. You sound like the uh, vice chair of civic engagement and voter participation for the Democratic National Committee, which you happen to be uh, newly uh, appointed in that regard. Well, well there's going to be a big battle over voting rights in the Congress uh, coming up in the, in the U.S. Senate. But what I hear you saying is whatever happens— you don't expect people to be deterred, that you're going to fight through uh, all the barriers. Absolutely. And, and what's interesting, even in Georgia, more older white voters mail in their ballots than black voters. And, it, it, you know, so it's really nonsensical. You're, the Republicans are cutting off their noses to spite their faces. Black folk in Georgia aren't the only people who, who uh, vote absentee. But they're doing things like trying to eliminate Sunday voting. You can't give out food and water to people standing in line. They're trying to eliminate 
make it no excuse absentee uh, ballot. They, you can't put people on buses. I mean, it, it is outrageous what they are attempting to do. Well, I know you have an election coming up in the in the fall. Uh, you're, uh, you've got an opponent. Uh, we've talked about some of the issues. Uh, I presume you're approaching that with enthusiasm and confidence. I am. I am. It's going to be a tough election. You know, it is, uh, I already have an opponent, so I'm not taking anything for granted. Um, but we, we talked a little bit about Chicago and I remember standing outside my grandmother's house because Harold Washington was coming to the neighborhood. Everybody stood outside to watch his car come up. <laughs> um, and, and the, see a leader with that impact on communities and, and a leader who had that much respect from communities, you know, at the end of the day, I want to have that impact, not the adoration, but that you've done so much for communities and that you've left such a mark and you've made people's lives better that they'll come out and vote for you. And mm -hmm. You know, maybe they won't stand outside their house when you come to the neighborhood, but that they'll, you know, my hope is that they'll recognize in the, some of the toughest periods of our city and our country's history um, that I was able to, to lead us through it. And it hadn't been perfect. It certainly hadn't been easy, um, but we're still standing. Well, Mayor, I, I will tell you that Harold Washington was an old client of mine and one of the most uh, extraordinary figures I've ever worked for. And I lived through that period in Chicago, and I know exactly what you're talking about. It's a worthy aspiration, and I so appreciate uh, uh, this, this time with you. Wish you the best. Hope to see you down the line. Well, thank you so much. It's such an honor uh, to join you. And I, I was going to say it was a conversation, but you got to ask all the questions I did all the talking. So next time, I love to ask you a bunch of questions. Um, I'm at your disposal, but right. uh, and I look forward to it. Thank you, uh, Thank Mayor you. Keisha Lance Bottoms. It's great to be with you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg. Jeff Fox, Hannah McDonald, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.